I stood kind of opposed to a lot of his viewpoints, but if he does take military action, if he does put his foot down, I just may very well become a big Trump supporter. Welcome to Majority Minority, the show about people of color changing the face of politics. I'm Bill Douglas. And I'm Franco Ordonez. Over the weekend, it was reported that civilians in Syria were victims of the latest chemical attack by the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Since the Syrian revolution began seven years ago, pictures and videos have circulated around the world showing the horrors of war. But this week, President Trump sent conflicting messages about what the U.S. policy should be towards Syria. He even hinted at airstrikes. Among the people awaiting Trump's next move is Netta Kadri, who has spent the last several years shuttling between her home in Dearborn, Michigan, and the coast of Greece receiving Syrian refugees with her nonprofit, Humans for Humanity. Her work has been featured in the documentary Light on the Sea. I've actually been an activist for the revolution for quite a while, but now I'm in the action, actually working with the refugees and hands-on and greeting them with the boats. We wanted to get her perspective on the latest chemical attack, the prospects of a strike, and our president. Then we wanted to learn more about the debate on Syria here in Washington. At the end of the day, the Syrian crisis is a political problem. Mohammed al-Bardan fled the country in 2011. Now he's vice chair of the American Relief Coalition for Syria, and he's seeking stronger action from Congress. Stick around on Majority Minority. You know, Bill, the Syrian-American community is extremely conflicted about the idea of a military strike on their homeland, particularly from President Trump. This, to them, is the guy who has issued a travel ban, blocked many of their family members from coming to the United States to be with them. Now they are rallying behind him uh, in their hopes that finally President Trump can overthrow the Assad regime. That is an amazing moment right now, and it's fascinating to watch how conflicted this community is about what could happen very soon. And here to give us some perspective on the issue is Netta Kadri. Thank you so much for joining us on Majority Minority. It's great to have you here. I'm just going to jump right out and ask you this morning when you woke up and either read or heard about President Trump's tweeting of a strike coming, what did you think? What did you feel? To be quite honest with you, I have conflicted feelings. I kind of feel that if it was going to be a real strike or something that would be of military significance, it would have happened silently. I kind of feel like these are warnings and now Assad is moving his planes to Russian air bases or to civilian airports. And it just kind of feels in a way like it's just a game, if you will. A game how? See, for us on this side, um, we feel that this is either, one, Russia is done with Assad. It's taken over the natural resources of Syria. The forced displacement has happened. His role is over. Or there's really nothing that's going to happen. It's going to be like last year. They're going to strike Air Force Base, and it's going to be out of operation for one week. They're going to fix it, and they're going to be raining bombs on the skies on the people all over again. So we don't know which one of the two it's going to be. Is it like really significant? Is this really serious? Is this it? Or is this just another ruse? And so we're watching it very, very closely. And we're taking everything with a grain of salt, to be to be quite honest. Would you like Trump to take stronger action? Absolutely. You would have asked me in 2013 after the chemical weapons massacre if they should strike. My answer was, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if the military is the way to go. 
uh, I want him gone, but I don't want more civilians to die or, or I don't want this war to escalate. Five years on and after working with refugees and seeing the kind of effects that this war has had and, and the long-term implications of the, the effects of the trauma of this war, absolutely, I wish he will strike and I hope he strikes with force and forces a no-fly zone over the Syrian skies. Why a no-fly zone? Because when all the forest displacement and evacuation started happening with Aleppo and other suburbs of Damascus last year, we saw an influx of refugees come in. And a lot of these people that had been displaced from Damascus had been living for years under siege. And, you know, I had a group of them sitting and I said, you know, what made you finally leave? Was it the siege? And they said, no, we could have lasted in the siege 10 more years. You know, we had tunnels. We were willing to eat leaves and grass. We were willing to take it. It was purely, purely, purely the Russian airstrikes that caused us to leave. It was terrorizing. He said they would start in the middle of the night, so no sleep. They would use the strongest of bombs, so you could be in a shelter that was deep, in a deep, deep tunnel, and the bunker buster bombs would, would basically create 100-meter craters, as they describe it. It's probably not that much, but this is what it felt like to them. So it's, it's that death, this destruction, this displacement, disfigurement, and they're causing the psychological trauma that will live on for generations. It's not going to go away in a year or two. What were your thoughts when you heard about the most recent chemical attack and, and when you saw the photos of, of kids crying? When you are active in this crisis or in this war, this isn't the first time you've seen pictures of dead babies. And it breaks your heart. You cry and you, you, you get angry every time, but in a way it becomes something that is expected. You become jaded. And what's worse is the feeling that accompanies it, which is no one is going to care. No one's going to do anything about it. He's just going to keep doing it. This isn't the first time we see these images. You mentioned worrying about whether people care. Do you feel people care? No. And that's the God honest truth. You know, I remember when I was a kid in grade school, and I remember when we first learned about the Holocaust, asking my teacher how Hitler was able to get away with what he did for the years that he did without anybody doing anything about it. And I remember my teacher saying, because nobody knew, you know, nobody knew what was happening. And here we have the, the probably the first war in history where everything is playing out in real time. We've got videos and pictures of the worst of attacks from activists on the ground within moments of them happening. And we're watching this death and destruction play out in real time. And you have a part of the global community that denies it altogether, says it's all, it doesn't exist, all of it is fake. You've got another part of the global community that acknowledges it, but says it's kind of not our problem to do anything about it. And then you've got a part of the global community that doesn't even know what's happening or where Syria is on the map. So the feeling of nobody cares, you know, seven years uh, of this happening, you can't help but feel that way. Why don't you think Americans care more? Well, you have people in Europe, whether it's in Holland or Germany or the UK, they're being directly affected, for instance, by this refugee crisis. So they have no choice but to pay attention. As far as the war goes, um, there are several factors. You know, Assad played this really smart. He played a really smart PR game early on. Uh, we were 
coming into the Obama administration, you had a lot of Americans very upset about the Iraq war, upset about our previous foreign policy. He played that card really well. America's trying to bring democracy to Syria, and it's going to end up like another Iraq, like another Libya. And this was right after Benghazi. So you've got, you know, or around Benghazi. So a lot of people got swayed uh, negatively because of that because they thought that this was just going to be another foreign policy blunder, that this was a whole American regime change versus something that the, the people of Syria wanted to do. So you've got, implicitly, they don't want to be involved because they think that this is just going to be another foreign policy blunder. Um, others, as far as why they don't care, I think, again, same thing with the refugee crisis. I think the distance plays a great part. They feel like this is happening on the other side of the world. It doesn't affect us as Americans. But in the framework of that feeling that nobody cares, solutions are done by governments. Our elected officials, do you think they care enough to take more concrete set of actions? I think some do, but they realize that to a certain degree, they do represent the people. You know, like Senator McCain for a while, you know, from early on with the protests, even when there were just protests or even when it morphed into an armed rebellion, you know, he took a very very big concern and he was he was looking towards Syria he was trying to do something about it but the overall general opinion was against any involvement so at the end of the day I think to a certain degree elected officials do make their decisions based on general opinion if the whole country is saying don't get involved they're not going to get involved because this is going to translate into low numbers at the polls possibly not being reelected how do you feel about Trump right now Depending on what happens in the next couple of days, I just may very well become a very big Trump supporter. It sounds like you're wrestling with that a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know how I feel just yet, to be quite honest with you. I don't know. I don't know if he's actually going to be the guy that comes in and says, you know what, um, this is not the world that we're supposed to live in. This is not okay. Babies being killed is not okay. And no one is stopping it. I want to ask you, I mean, you're in Dearborn, which is one of the largest Arab and Muslim populations in the United States. Is there consensus within that community on what to do about Syria or what the U.S. government's involvement should be concerning Syria? We are a very divided community, um, divided, not just communities, but families. You know, the people that are pro-Assad are very pro and the people that are against them are very, very much against it's no secret that the majority of my population in my community are Lebanese American and a majority of them from southern Lebanon. And as we know, Hezbollah is fighting for the Assad regime. And there is also a large concentration of pro-Palestinian activists that are also very much pro-Assad. So if you come to my community, you will find the considerable majority pro-Assad, the considerable majority saying, you know, believing that he is uh, this hero that is fighting oppression and aggression of the West and imperialism and capitalism and everything that is wrong with the world, and that he's the perfect leader. And they are fact deniers. They are the kings of fake news. I've been accused of fabricating the videos myself, working for the American, you know, it goes that far. So we are a very divided community, to be honest. And for the most part, you see them very anti-strikes because they are very pro-Assad. And this is something that is what it is. How do you sell or how do people who want a more robust action, U.S. action in Syria, sell the idea of that to the administration, to members of Congress? 
I say logic. If if a congressperson or just any normal human being, if you put two people in front of them without mentioning you're talking about Syria or the U.S. or whatever it is, and one person's argument is got holes all over it and it's just a denial of the truth, and the next person is presenting facts, reports, witnesses, everything that you could possibly imagine to present a case, where would you side? I mean, again, let's bring this into a normal context. If this was a court trial and you know there was somebody on trial for murder and the defense is just telling you that that video surveillance footage you saw of him stabbing that guy, that didn't happen. That was fabricated. And that witness that saw him you know, breaking into that place, that, that witness doesn't exist. He's a fake person that prosecution fabricated and went on to fight by just saying everything was fake. And then the prosecution gets up and they, they show you the surveillance footage. They bring a plethora of witnesses that saw it happen. Which are you going to believe? Like, I cannot even believe that, that Assad's tactics have worked because in any other context of everyday life, they would be viewed as ridiculous. Some of what you felt this morning must have been relief that, that Trump uh, and his administration was considering taking action. You know, when I first, first saw, first saw him say that he's, you know, he's going to respond with force, I literally jumped three feet in the air and I was so happy. But then as I saw that it took, okay, that night nothing happened. And then we thought, okay, maybe yesterday something will happen and something didn't happen yesterday. And instead we woke up to a bunch of tweets. And when I want to go help someone, I don't sit and talk about it on, on Twitter or Facebook. I just get up and I take action. What were your first interactions with Syrian migrants? I mean, you were in Lesbos welcoming migrants to the shore. What, what was that like? Welcoming these people on the coast, it's very, very bittersweet. You look at them and you're finally look, looking at the people that you've been advocating for. You're looking into their faces and you, you're getting to know the victims that, that you've been fighting for. But it's very bitter because you see these are the displaced of that country. You wonder if they'll ever go back. You know, I've met people that suffered losses in the first chemical weapons massacre, so they had to leave, you know, their dead loved ones behind. I've met people that had sons or husbands or whatever in detention. They don't know what happened to them, but they had to leave them behind. So it's, it's seeing that displacement, hearing the stories firsthand. When you sit across the table from a woman that has five daughters whose husband was tortured to death, and who also lost four other brother-in-laws. So when you hear stories like this, like you are hearing it directly from them, I can't explain the feeling that it gives to you. What have you lost? What has your family lost? I assume you have relatives who are still in Syria? Yes. We have lost several family members to snipers. We have some people in detention. A couple of my cousins were taken into detention, tortured for a couple months, and then let go. We have one cousin that has never been found. He disappeared off the face of the earth. We don't know if he's dead or alive. He's been gone since uh, September 2000, either 13 or 14. My husband is also a Syrian refugee and a victim of torture himself. He was tortured for 28 days with Air Force intelligence. So as far as personal connection goes, um, we have a home in Syria that my mom is dying to go see, make sure it's okay. But she's afraid because her daughter is, you know, is heavily active in the cause. And even having an American daughter that uses her voice is a threat to her as a Syrian. 
So we haven't been able, you know, obviously to go back home. My mom hasn't seen her family in, in several years. So it, it does have personal consequences. What do you say to people who, who say, well, there are humanitarian crisis in Libya, there's humanitarian crisis in the Philippines. What do you say to people who question how big a humanitarian crisis this is? I say look beyond whatever it is you think you know. I, I talk about this little girl, this little three-year-old girl that I met a few months back. Uh, she couldn't speak a single word yet because, because of the trauma of the air bombardments. Yet this little three-year-old girl when a plane flies above head, she knows to drop face flat on the ground and to put her hands behind her head. When a chlorine bomb hits, she knows to automatically take that wet blanket that mom's always got on the side and to cover herself with. If white phosphorus or napalm drops, she knows to jump into that big bathtub of water or that big tub of water that's always filled so that the ash doesn't burn your lungs as you, as you breathe it. This little three-year-old girl that doesn't even know how to say a single word knows how to deal with advanced and sophisticated weaponry and what to do, and she still drops to the floor every time a plane flies by. When this, this new generation that was born under war and knows nothing but death and destruction have now became teenagers and adults, this is something that will surely, surely have all kinds of implications for years to come. Can I share, like, the next, the next 24, 48 hours, I imagine, are going to be pretty emotional for you, like many Syrian Americans, like many Americans. What will that time be like for you, and what do you hope happens? You know, everything just on complete edge until something happens to see what is going to happen. The thing right now isn't, is he going to strike or not? It's in what capacity is he going to strike? Is this possibly the end, or is it just, you know, a pause? I have to mention, though, that just the threat of a strike has already imposed a no-fly zone in Syria. For the first time in a very long time, a lot of people are sitting peacefully with clear skies, not worrying about the threat of a bomb falling on their head. So there is already kind of a sense of relief, although I don't know how long that relief will last. I don't know if I'm going to feel relieved or if I'm going to feel duped or if I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to feel because it's going to depend on the capacity of the strikes. Netta, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Have a great one. Netta really underscored the human toll. Now we're talking to Mohammed El Bardan about the politics. Yeah, because he's really going to frame this issue. You got to tell Republicans one thing, you got to tell Democrats the other thing. Or at least they want to hear different things if they're going to get on board. Yeah, uh, Democrats and Republicans come at this from different perspectives. Mohammed, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Washington on Capitol Hill? I mean, what, what have you been doing on this issue? The humanitarian advocacy part was more like to raise some awareness when it comes to the education mainly. I was very involved in the education part. We want to make sure that uh, the administration aware here about uh, the law generation that we're having in the country and how important actually from a national security perspective that we take those kids to school rather than having the other side taking them, recruiting them to other uh, military aspects. And that was really something we wanted to put, uh, we, we, we put a lot of efforts on it because it's really a, a problem for Syria. And I think that problem actually a, a lot of uh, countries understand and they don't want to deal with that problem in the future. And this is why we are here. And our solution will be political solution. Well, how are you and your organization conveying that to members of Congress? I uh, actually last trip to Washington was almost 
four and a half months ago, we had a congressional reception for what we call the Friends of Syria, almost 25 uh, senators and congressmen and women. It was very healthy conversation. I mean, we're still very limited with, uh, with number of allies in Congress and Senate so far, but we're doing a lot of progress getting people, I mean, like Senator John McCain, Senator Lizzie Graham, Tom Cotton, Senator Mark Rubio. We have a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans in this within the Syrian American community. What is the interest for Republicans and what's the interest for Democrats? Uh, the interest of Republican, I mean, was uh, to, to some extent that the anti-Russia rhetoric. So it's uh, like, especially the Russians are very involved now in the within the backing of the Syrian government. Uh, the more important one, actually, are the anti-Iran voices, which is like the anti-Iran deal and the anti-Obama Obama's uh, policies when it comes like to Iran. That's really one of the biggest aspects when it comes to to their support. When it comes to to Democrats. There is anti-Russian rhetoric uh, when it comes to that, especially after the Russian middle in the election. And that anti-Russian voices we're we're hearing more and more uh, recently. I mean, members of Congress are very good at letting you down easily. What, What do they tell you when they say, when you ask for them to do more, how do they let you down easy and say no? I, I'm based in Massachusetts. Massachusetts senators, for example, uh, Senator Warren and, and Senator Murky, they are totally against regime change. And and, and they would look at, uh, we can work the, with the Russian as Putin, someone that will listen to uh, and agree on human rights to them. And, and, and they look at the Iraqi example as the only example that the American uh, uh, administration can do. Although I agree with them, like in a lot of issues, they were they are very supportive when it comes to immigration and many other policies. I mean, however, it's so sad to see them taking this in a more ideological way and, and not being supportive for the Syria cause. What are your thoughts on Trump now? Uh, that's a tough question. So I would disagree with him, like in a lot of cases, or maybe 90% of his policies. However, I think of his tweets back and forth. But if that will lead to something good, I think he would have taken the right decision, right, come to Syria. And, and at least part of the suffering that the Syrian people has been uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, I mean, on that contradict what President Obama ignored that for the last eight years. So so basically, it sounds like you're frustrated at the pace of Washington when it comes to the crisis in Syria. We're talking about the defining humanitarian crisis in our generation. When when we're handling this conversation, still like, I, I still see that this this is not very easy to explain to every politician in the uh, in Washington. What change do you want Washington to make, and what will it take to convince them? I don't know. After seven years now, after what we have seen, after the destruction of a country, I don't want to say I'm hopeless because we're still working. We're still trying to actually gain some support. But by now, we, we need we need really a courage and brave decision from the administration, from the White House to take action on this. Mohammed, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this certainly will be an issue that we'll be paying attention to going forward. Thank you so much for having me. What Mohammed did for us, Bill, I think, is he framed this issue. It's not just a humanitarian issue. It is a political issue. Like Netta, he sees the human toll of the crisis, but his job is to put it in language that both Democrats and Republicans can understand. We'll see what happens next. 
Thanks very much to Mohamed Albardon and Netta Kadri for being on the show. And thanks to producers Jordan Marie Smith, Davin Coburn, and executive producer Ayanna Morali. We're glad to be back for season three, and we want to hear what you think. Find Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And we'll see you next week on Majority Minority.